Hello Dreamers and Happy New Year. Welcome to the first episode of 2023. This may be a new year, but there really isn't anything about the show that's new, except for the episodes, and I'm happy to have all of you here today listening. California Dreaming is an independent ad-free production, which means I rely solely on the support of my listeners. And there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. That helps to give us more discoverability out there amid the sea of true crime shows. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Comment, like, share, all the good stuff. Word of mouth also helps bring in fresh listeners. So you can mention us if you see someone looking for a podcast recommendation and you think we might be a good fit. And if somehow you've managed to run out of things to listen to and you can spare a dollar or two a month, you can join the show's Patreon where there are dozens of full-length episodes that you won't find anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps to keep the lights on and the treat jars full. You can also find links to everything that I just mentioned in the show notes. This week, I would like to thank Christine F., Annabelle C., James R., Edmund C., Mary R., Bridget C., Anna V., Lydia N., Marie P., Katie T., Lee B., James C., Tiffany C., and Cynthia D. for either joining, coming back, raising to the next tier, or going annual, or donating through PayPal. All right, let's get started with today's episode. On December 19, 1996, a company founded and operated by Sang Ji Peng called Ranger Electronics found itself under federal indictment for the illegal importation of radio equipment. In addition to that, Peng, who was Taiwanese, along with the president of Ranger Electronics USA, John Goivin, were also indicted on the charges of conspiracy to import and sell electronic devices. Three months later, on March 27, 1997, a superseding indictment charged that Ranger Electronics, Ranger USA, and Peng conspired to violate the customs laws, conspired to commit money laundering, and for bringing merchandise into the United States, contrary to various federal laws. I won't get into all the U.S. codes that they were charged under right now, but you get the point. This company was in some deep doo-doo. At the time of the indictments, Federal Communications Commission or FCC regulations required that citizen band or CB radios be type accepted by the FCC before they could be distributed in this country. The government argued that the radios that were specified in the indictments were quote-unquote open radios, which operate illegally in that they are not restricted to the 40 CB bands but operate on additional channels as well. The defendants argued that the radios were amateur radios and thus imported under an exemption. The district court found that the radios in question were not the type accepted by the FCC and would not have been the type accepted because they broadcast on frequencies other than those approved by the FCC. 
Ranger Electronics attempted to obtain exculpatory material from the government pursuant to Brady versus Maryland, which we are all probably really familiar with by now. They're called Brady violations. In March of 1997, defense counsel sought production of all evidence known to the government, which may be favorable to the defendant and material to either guilt or punishment. In April of 1997, the government agreed to provide all materials on January 9th, 1998, three days before the trial. Defense counsel also tried to obtain evidence from the FCC to help prove that the regulations in question were vague. In June of 1997, they made requests under the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, for documents related to CB and amateur radios. On June 20th and August 8th, 1997, the FCC arrived at this conclusion based at least in part on the recommendations of the assistant United States attorneys who were handling the Ranger Electronics prosecution. In August of 1997, the district court ruled that the FCC regulations regarding open radios were clear and unambiguous. On January 9, 1998, the court ruled that the defendants could not attack the FCC regulations for being confusing, but they could present evidence that they were confused about the regulations and that they reasonably believed that the radios were legal amateur radios and not illegal non-type accepted CB radios. In early January of 1998, the FCC advised the prosecutors that it had discovered approximately 400 more documents responsive to the FOIA request. The prosecutors asked the FCC to immediately fax those documents that the FCC thought were important for the prosecutors to review. The prosecutors received the faxes on or about January 12, 1998. Among those selected documents were some of the emails attached to Ranger's hide motion. The prosecutors examined the faxes and concluded that they, like the FCC documents that they had reviewed in July of 1997, concerned only modifiable radios and contained no reference to open radios. In addition, they were created outside the time frame charged in the indictment. Thus, the prosecutors decided not to produce them. On the date the trial began, January 13, 1998, the assistant U.S. attorney told the defendants that he had received additional FCC documents which he had yet to review. The trial ended before the prosecutors completed their review of the FCC FOIA documents. Ranger Electronics also attempted to defend the charges by pointing to the suspicious bank records of Ranger USA President John Goyvin. The defendants claimed that Goyvin, by then former president and government witness, was embezzling money from Ranger USA. The defendants based this assumption on a wire transfer confirmation showing that Goyvin had a joint bank account with a Ranger USA customer. In December of 1997, the defendants subpoenaed the bank records of Goyvin from 1992 through January 15, 1998. The government's motion to quash the subpoena was denied by the court on January 16th. One day before the trial began on January 14th, Goyvin was asked about the wire transfer. He stated that it was for the sale of a Rolex watch to the owner of Santa Fe, a company that did business with Ranger USA. He was asked if the loans were a payoff or if he was skimming money from Ranger USA. 
he replied that the loans were legit. On January 19, 1998, the assistant U.S. attorney met with Guaivin to prepare him for his testimony the following day. At this meeting, Guaivin admitted that he lied about the sale of the Rolex watch. Instead, he declared that he had borrowed money from Ranger USA and used the joint bank account with the customer to hide the money. Thus, the government learned of Guaivin's lie three days after the hearing on the motion to quash the subpoena for his bank records and one day prior to Guaivin's testimony in court. Guaivin testified for the government on January 20th to the 21st of 1998. On the second day of examination, he testified that the money in the joint bank account was for the unauthorized sale of refurbished radios owned by Ranger USA. On recross examination, defense counsel elicited testimony from Guaivin that he had lied and he claimed that the personal loans were undocumented, carried no interest rate, and had never been repaid in part or in whole. On January 22, 1998, defense counsel argued the prosecutors had committed a Brady violation and the defense was entitled to a dismissal of the indictment. The district court found that the prosecutor intentionally failed to inform defense counsel prior to Goyvin's testimony that the story about the Rolex was a lie. The court concluded that this was a Brady violation, but specifically found that the defense had not suffered any prejudice because they confronted Goyvin about the lie on recross examination. Additionally, defense counsel admitted that he was not prejudiced. The court offered the defense a mistrial which the defense declined. A plea agreement was reached shortly thereafter, so the case ended without a jury verdict. Under the plea agreement, charges against Pang and Ranger were dismissed, while Ranger USA pleaded guilty, and Ranger Shanghai, which had not been charged up to that time, pleaded no contest with a $990,000 forfeiture. The judgment terminating the criminal case against Ranger was entered on February 3, 1998. Ranger refused to withdraw its motion to obtain FCC documents under FOIA, so it received the documents pursuant to the request on March 20, 1998. However, it was not until June 9, 1998 that Ranger filed its motion for attorney's fees and other costs under the Hyde Amendment, which I mentioned a moment ago. It's a federal statute that allows federal courts to award attorney's fees and court costs to criminal defendants where the court finds that the position of the United States was vexatious, frivolous, or in bad faith. The court found that the prosecution had acted in bad faith in withholding Brady materials from the defendants by failing to reveal to the defense the fact that Goyvin had lied to the prosecution about the sale of the Rolex watch, which he used as an excuse for the receipt of a wire money transfer that the defendant's claim was a payoff from a competitor. The court also found that the withholding of the FCC documents which were requested under the FOIA was a violation of Brady. The court ended up awarding Ranger a little more than $40,000 in attorney's fees and expenses. In awarding those fees, the court concluded that Ranger was only entitled to recover fees incurred after January 9, 1998 the date on which the United States promised disclosure of Brady materials but failed to make those disclosures. 
So now we're going to take an in-depth look at the various FCC regulations that were violated within the aforementioned case, the United States versus Ranger Electronics, what it was about the radio equipment that fell under those violations, the differences between those CB radios and amateur radios, the various frequencies that those radios operate on, as well as the ones that are not supposed to be used. As we go along here, we will examine the Brady violations committed by the United States prosecutors, the fallout when something like that happens, the case that Brady versus Maryland was based on, as well as the Hyde Amendment that, and how that came about. So buckle up, dreamers. We're going to take a deep dive into all of these federal codes and landmark decisions. I'm just kidding. We are so not going to talk about any of that. I mean, how dreadfully boring would this episode be? You're probably already bored to tears. I mean, this would bore me to tears. So yeah, we are not doing that. If you were listening very carefully to the passage that I just read you, which is from an actual U.S. federal court document, you may have noticed that I alluded to a, quote, ongoing criminal investigation. Did my dreamers catch that? A couple of minutes in, I said, the FCC declined to produce several of the requested documents on the grounds that they would interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation. So yeah, that is what we're going to talk about today. Not any CB radios, FCC, federal laws, all that crap. We are going for that ongoing criminal investigation, which is a whole lot juicier. It's the stuff that TV movies are made of. So now... You all can wake up and buckle up because this is about to get real. One of the defendants named in that federal indictment was Sang Ji Peng, but in doing business, he went by Jim Peng. Jim, who was 49 years old at the time our story took place, had been married for close to 20 years to his wife, 47-year-old Lisa Peng. Together, they founded Ranger Electronics, and from the ground up, grew it into a company worth hundreds of millions of dollars. A company that specialized in radio equipment utilized by law enforcement agencies all around the world. They literally started this company from nothing, only to become one of the leaders in CB radios by way of their dedication to their company and their dedication to each other. They had a shared goal and a desire to leave their mark on the industry. Jim and Lisa also had two children, boys, and it was their hope to be able to move to the United States so their children would be able to receive the best education possible. And the dream was Southern California. So in 1990, Jim and Lisa began the U.S. branch of their company, which they based out of San Diego. But why just have one beautiful home in California when you can buy two. So they purchased a second home in South Orange County in the city of Rancho Santa Margarita. Their two boys were placed into a private boarding school in Orange County in order for Lisa to be able to travel freely back and forth from Taiwan while Jim continued to grow their Ranger Electronics internationally. And one of the biggest markets that Jim was interested in getting into was China, the mainland. Taiwan, as you know, or you might not know, is off the coast of China, south of Japan, and north of the Philippines, and is governed by China. 
But in traveling back and forth for Jim, on the surface, it was supposed to be for business, but he was also there for pleasure. And it is a common thing, it was and probably is, for these wealthy businessmen like Jim to mix the two. And when he would travel to China, he would go out with women who were interested in meeting these men with money in an attempt to make their money or to even get out of the living situations that they were in or to get out of China altogether. So in August of 1990, Jim met a woman nearly 25 years his junior. Her name was Jennifer G. She was an employee at one of the swanky hotels that Jim stayed at on his business trips, and he was immediately taken by her. How it was that they met was that there was some kind of outdoor performance at the hotel that evening where Jennifer was working and Jim was staying. Jim was, I guess, by American standards, a little bit on the short side. Most Asian people are a little bit short in stature, both men and women. But if you're a woman, it doesn't take very many inches to be a lot taller than the men, especially if you have heels on. So Jim was outside trying to watch this performance, but this tall woman standing in front of him was blocking his view. So he gently tapped her on the shoulder and asked her if she could move to the side a little bit. It turned out that this tall woman was Jennifer G. Jennifer was young, beautiful, and dynamic. And Jim, he just really could not resist. She was considered to be one of the loveliest young women in the small town she was from. And after Jim had this chance encounter with Jennifer, he found it difficult to think about anything but her. They began corresponding by mail, and for a guy who may have lost the romantic side of himself, perhaps in a stale marriage, or just time, distance, busyness, work, children, all the stuff that couples can get caught up in, meeting Jennifer, it was as if he rediscovered that side of himself that he thought had long burned out. His letters were filled with sweet nothings, how much that he was in love with Jennifer, what she meant to him, all that mushy stuff. Jim was kind of starting to act like a teenager who had a massive crush on a girl. And I guess Jim forgot what all of that felt like. And as for Jennifer, she may have been having similar feelings for Jim, but what she definitely found in him was a wealthy man to help her get to the next level in life that she was hoping for. They were both filling a void for one another, and they were both good with that. They spent as much time together as they could on that business trip until Jim had to return to California. But just a few short weeks later, Jim was back in China and back in Jennifer's arms. Meetings between Jennifer and Jim continued over the course of the next several months as Jim made frequent trips back and forth between Taiwan and mainland China and California under the guise of these being business trips. And while that may partly have been true, the fact was these get-togethers with Jennifer eventually turned into a full-blown love affair. It may have started off as an infatuation for Jim and a wealthy sugar daddy for Jennifer, but they ultimately developed very deep feelings for one another 
and it became more than just sex for him and more than just access to money for her. They were in love, and while Jim had decided to continue to pursue this relationship with Jennifer, he not only had intentions of making sure that she had a secure place in his life, Jim also had no intentions of leaving his wife. Lisa, remember her? Yeah, dude is still married, and he intended to keep it that way. Jennifer was to be his mistress, and this was apparently perfectly fine with her, at least for the time being. And what's more, Jim went ahead and gave Jennifer a job at his company's offices there in Shanghai. And it wasn't just any old job. He placed Jennifer at the management level. So now everything was in place for the two of them to be able to carry on and for Jennifer to no longer have to struggle to make ends meet at her old job at the hotel. Here's the thing. It is apparently common for men in this Asian culture to have mistresses like this, to set them up with a place to live, to take care of them, to have children with them, the whole thing, right? And the wife is supposed to sort of accept these things. But the trade-off is, is that the mistress is supposed to be the one that's kept a secret and hidden from view. So Jim is not supposed to be having any type of overt friendliness or flirtiness at work now that Jennifer was employed at his company. However, Jim doing that, bringing Jennifer into this company that he and his wife built together, went against those unspoken rules of infidelity. So, of course, and full disclosure, dreamers, I may be somewhat biased against men at times in the show, but I'll say this, both men and women are very much capable of being the asshole in a marriage. And both men and women are capable of doing stupid things or in some way slipping up. In this case, of course, Jim is the stupid one. And after one of his trips back from China, Lisa, who was the one who helped him pack and unpack his luggage on these trips, while sorting through his clothing, found an article of women's clothing amongst his things. When Lisa confronted him about it, he was actually pretty nonchalant. And he told her that it was a shirt that belonged to a friend. Lisa wasn't stupid. And being a woman of Asian descent, she knew that it was common for these husbands of theirs, who were successful businessmen, to almost always carry on relationships with mistresses. But it's one thing to know that these things happen in relationships, but it was something that took Lisa by surprise. I guess maybe it was a thing that she really didn't think about or consider. So when she discovered this article of clothing, coupled with Jim's blasé attitude about it, Lisa simply wasn't prepared for the feelings of rage that were suddenly released inside her. She just really didn't expect something like this would ever happen to her. And she especially didn't think Jim wouldn't even care when she was in the process of finding out about this ongoing affair and that he had been keeping a mistress. So Lisa started demanding to know the details. Who was this woman? Where was she at? How long had this been going on? Etc. Etc. But Jim, he kept his lips sealed tight. Tighter than he was able to keep his pants zipped up. He did not want Lisa knowing anything about anything that he was doing. 
and this carried on and on and on. They argued about this mistress, and Lisa continually asked him to end this relationship with her, but Jim let it be known that he had no intentions of ending things. He absolutely refused to even entertain the possibility, and this only drove Lisa's rage further and further off the charts. She was furious, and she was going to hold tight to making sure that Jim ended things with this mistress just as Jim intended to hold on tight to his relationship with her. So Lisa decided to get all Magnum P.I. on the matter and set out to track down who this mistress was. And with that, the dragon within her had been unleashed. Remember, Lisa was very much a part of the radio and electronics business, just as much as Jim was. Lisa was an integral part of the business and a big reason why they were both very, very successful. Jim did not do that on his own. Even though this culture is very chauvinistic in their attitudes towards women and their roles in relationships and in business. But Jim Pang, he would not have had what he had if it wasn't for Lisa. They started that company together and by God, she would sink it to the ground if she had to in order to figure out who Jim was having an affair with. Also, if you recall, Lisa and Jim placed their two sons in boarding school in California, specifically so that both of them could freely travel to Taipei, Taiwan for business, which is where it all started for them. And while Jim was allegedly off in mainland China for business, when the truth was he was really just getting busy, Lisa would be running the Taipei branch of the company. So after she found out about this mistress, on her next business trip to Taipei, she started asking around the office to try and figure out who Jim was messing around with. Even though Jennifer was technically working out of the company's Shanghai offices, she apparently got around a lot, frequently working and traveling with Jim. Being discreet really wasn't their thing, and the word started getting whispered and gossiped around the office that the two of them had a little something going on, that Jennifer was Jim's side chick, everybody knew. Of course, Lisa was the last to know, and while it turned out that she didn't need any Magnum PI level investigative skills to figure that out. This affair between her husband and the new young company leader that never worked a day in her life in management was the company's worst kept secret ever. So when Lisa found out who the mistress was, that it was Jennifer G, and she was actually on her payroll, Lisa was like, oh no, you didn't. This woman has got to go. Lisa wanted her fired immediately. I mean, can you imagine you're signing the paycheck of your husband's mistress? Hell no. But Jim stood his ground. He wanted Jennifer as his employee and as his mistress, and she was not going anywhere, and he basically told Lisa to suck it. She continued to demand that he get rid of Jennifer, but he absolutely refused. And Lisa was just beside herself. She could not believe that Jim would treat her this way after their two decades of marriage, two children, and having built a multi-million dollar business together. How could he humiliate her like this? Having this woman around, flaunting her, throwing it in her face. Everybody in the company knew about it. Lisa was mortified that he would bring this woman into the business that they created and into the marriage that they had. But Jim absolutely would not budge. He would not get rid of Jennifer he would not stop seeing her. So Lisa decided to try and go at this from the other end of things. She tried talking to Jennifer. 
As adamant as Jim was that he would not end this affair, Lisa was just as adamant to see it come to an end if it was the last thing she did. Lisa traveled to Shanghai to have a face-to-face confrontation with Jennifer. And at first, Lisa was going to try to be diplomatic about it. When they met, Lisa told Jennifer that she knew she was having an affair with her husband and it would be best for all involved if Jennifer would put an end to it and step down from her job at their company. I think that Lisa thought that being so many years older than Jennifer, the owner of the company and technically her boss, that Jennifer would be intimidated or scared and back off and go away quietly, but that is not what happened. Jennifer apparently felt quite secure in her job and in her place as Jim's side piece. She knew how much Jim was in love with her, and she knew that there was no way that Jim would allow Lisa to force her out of her job or out of his life. So Jennifer basically told Lisa that she wasn't going anywhere, that Jim was in love with her, and to just twist that knife just a little bit more, Jennifer told Lisa that Jim didn't love her anymore. So now that both Jim and Jennifer had both made it crystal clear that neither one of them were going to walk away from each other, Lisa was starting to realize that she was not going to get her way from either one of them. So this confrontation, what this did for Jennifer is that it caused her to become more confident and assured that her relationship with Jim was a solid one. Since Lisa found out about them and Jim had made it clear that he had no intentions of ending his relationship with her, Jennifer started to feel like she had some power in this whole dynamic. And because of that, she began to not really want to be the side piece anymore. Instead, she wanted to be Jim's main piece. Emboldened by Jim's willingness to stand up to his wife and refusing to leave her or fire her from the company, Jennifer started bringing up the prospect of taking their relationship to the next level. Jennifer told Jim that she wanted him to leave Lisa, that she wanted to get married, and she wanted to have children. However, as adamant as Jim was with Lisa that he was not going to end his relationship with Jennifer, the vice versa was true as well. Jim had no intentions of leaving Lisa for Jennifer either. Even though Jim was crazy in love with Jennifer, apparently, he wasn't going to divorce Lisa and the whole conversation needed to be dropped because divorcing her was not an option. Remember, dreamers, this is a case that was taking place in the early 90s and things have changed drastically when it comes to Chinese culture. In old China, there was really no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Divorce was frowned upon. China had a very low divorce rate. If you got married, then you were stuck, which really sucked for women because men had long been considered the boss of the family. And if they wanted to carry on an affair, they were pretty much able to do so freely, albeit discreetly, supposedly. Women were often financially dependent on their husbands, causing them to feel as if they had no choice but to stay and being divorced also used to carry with it a certain social stigma. People who knew that you were divorced felt some kind of way about you. Today, however, the divorce rate is way up, and it is not only because of the social and economic changes China has gone through in the last 10 years or so, but also because there has been a pivotal revision in the marriage registration regulations that happened in 2003 
that made getting divorced easier. According to an article on CNN.com, prior to this change, if a couple wanted to get a divorce, they had to get letters of endorsements from their jobs or the community that they lived in explaining why they supported that couple ending their marriage. And this would lead to a great deal of embarrassment. They would get lectures from family and friends. There would be neighborhood gossip and the couple were often shamed. So rather than have to be subjected to that humiliation, couples would choose to stay in unhappy marriages. Now, as long as there is no bickering over assets and custody, then a Chinese couple can get a divorce in a matter of minutes. And most divorces, of course, are because of exactly what Jim was doing here to his wife. In China, they call it Di Sanzi, a third party, the side piece. The upside of these social changes is that it makes marriage more equitable for women in that marriages are more harmonious and satisfying. Another thing holding Jim back from considering marrying Jennifer and starting a family with her was the fact that he was pretty happy with the two children that he had with Lisa. He loved his boys and had no interest in trying to juggle a mistress and a baby. When Jim started this relationship with Jennifer, whether it went said or unsaid, the expectation was for her to be his mistress, no more, no less. Jim was in love with her, but the line had been drawn in the sand. Jim's refusal to move forward in his relationship with Jennifer was upsetting to her. But as a trade-off, he told her that he would find a way to make more time for her. So what he started doing was bringing Jennifer stateside while Lisa was away working in Taiwan and their children were away at the boarding school. Whenever Jim was alone at the home that he and Lisa owned in Rancho Santa Margarita, he would fly Jennifer in to come and stay with him. But in a way, this plan kind of backfired on Jim because this whole arrangement only emboldened Jennifer even more. She started getting it in her head that Jim wouldn't be doing this if deep down he really wasn't serious about her. He wouldn't be bringing her to stay in the home that he and Lisa bought together. He wouldn't have her lay down in the bed that Lisa lays down in if he didn't want there to be something more lasting and permanent between them. So Jennifer got it stuck in her head that one day that beautiful Southern California home was someday going to be hers. At that point, Jennifer became more resolved than ever to get Jim locked down into a long-term relationship with her. She was determined to make this happen for herself. She just had to figure out a way to convince Jim. So things continued to carry on as Jim wanted them. For the next couple years, he bounced back and forth between Taiwan and China, the United States and Taiwan, San Diego and Rancho Santa Margarita, and Lisa and Jennifer. By the summer of 1992, it was around Jim and Jennifer's second mistress anniversary, when Jennifer had some good news, well, for her. She was having a baby. Yay, because it's so awesome to be having a kid with a married father of two that has no intentions of ever leaving them for you. So to me, it kind of sounded like this was Jennifer's way of trying to lure Jim out of his marriage with Lisa and into a marriage with her. In her mind, as it is for many young people, if we love each other and we're going to have a child together, then the natural course of things would be for us to get married. So she was excited to share this news. But as you can imagine, 
Jim was not pleased. I mean, it seemed like Jim had made it pretty clear that he did not want to leave his wife. He was happy with the kids that he had, and he wasn't interested in starting a whole new second family. Granted, he could have just walked away from Jennifer. He could have stopped having sex with her. But you know and I know that that wasn't going to happen. I don't know what sort of arrangement the two of them had. At this time, this was still old school China, where they were only allowing married couples to have one child with a few exceptions. So birth control was a big deal. And they were in Taiwan, so I don't even know if it even applied to them. There were some instances when women were forced into long-term contraceptives, like being made to have an IUD, up to and including forced sterilization. And like I said, I don't know what sort of arrangement Jim and Jennifer settled on, but he most likely relied on Jennifer being the one in charge of getting and keeping herself on contraceptives. Because Jim, he doesn't exactly strike me as the type of guy who's going to be the responsible, conscientious adulterer by taking the initiative to use condoms in order to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. But in his defense, he did tell Jennifer that he didn't want to have any more children. And at the time, he was almost 50 years old. So they likely had that talk, and I'm sure he was under the impression that Jennifer was taking care of things on her end. Unfortunately, Jennifer took some of the things that Jim was doing the wrong way. In her head, she was turning their affair into more than Jim ever really intended it to be. And I really can't accuse her of getting pregnant on purpose because I don't know that she did that. All I know is she's pregnant and she wasn't mad about it. So now Jim has found himself saddled with a whole new set of problems. Apparently, the major city where Jennifer was from and where she worked was Shanghai. It is the most populous city in China and apparently everybody knows your business. Just like it was easy for Lisa to find out who Jim's mistress was, it was only going to be a matter of time before Jennifer began showing and the town gossip would begin making the rounds amongst Shanghai's millions of people. And you know, back in the 1990s, the early 90s, the city's population hadn't even reached 9 million. Today, it stands at nearly 25 million. Jennifer was also in a position where she really needed to conceal this pregnancy from her family too. It was very shameful for her to be unmarried and pregnant. And it was really a shame, not just on your family, but also the entire family name, the whole legacy, and all of the ancestors too. So yeah, it uh, isn't a stretch to think that Jennifer probably went ahead and took the chance to get pregnant with the hopes of Jim marrying her so she wouldn't have to be faced with being the bane and humiliation of her family. But it didn't exactly go as planned. Now the both of them had to figure out a way to hide this predicament that they've now found themselves in. Anyway, Jim knew that word would get back to Lisa. It was only a matter of time. The only way to keep the gossip from spreading across Shanghai was to get Jennifer out of there. So Jim's answer to that dilemma was to move her to California. He rented her a very nice apartment in the city of Mission Viejo. And it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from his home in Rancho Santa Margarita. In March of 1993, Jennifer gave birth to their son. They named him Kevin. So now Jim's found himself in a pretty entangly entanglement. 
At that point, Lisa had no idea that just four miles or 6.5 kilometers away, Jim had a whole second family going on with a newborn baby boy. Being in the United States also meant that Jennifer would not have to face the struggles and hardships of trying to raise a child out of wedlock in China. Life was already going to be as difficult as it was, but being over here in the United States instead, it was the only way that Jennifer could guarantee that her son would have a fair shake at life and a bright future full of opportunities. The move for Jennifer was an exciting one. She was a very vibrant individual with a great deal of ambition, but she also had her own dreams that she wanted to chase. Coming to California was everything Jennifer could have ever wanted and more. She was happier than she could have ever imagined. On August 18, 1993, 911 received a call from the apartment complex Jennifer lived at with her five-month-old son, and they were called to Jennifer's apartment unit. When the Orange County Sheriff's deputies arrived at the scene, they encountered an Asian man who was pretty hysterical, in addition to the fact that his English was pretty broken. It was hard to understand him, but you don't need to be able to speak the same language to have been able to figure out that something terrible had happened. All Jim could say through his tears to the deputies was, they're dead, they're dead. And he motioned towards the open front door of the apartment. Since the door was already open, the deputies were able to peer inside the apartment before actually fully entering. It was at that point they saw a woman on the sofa. It was Jennifer, and she was slumped forward and sort of stuck there between the couch and the coffee table. The woman and the living room were covered in blood. Blood was stained and spattered everywhere. Upon taking a closer look at her, the deputies were able to ascertain that she had been stabbed multiple times. Later on, it was determined she was stabbed a total of 18 times. So this was up close and very personal. It was also evident that she had been dead for a while because lividity, the pooling of the blood in the body, had already set in Jennifer's lower extremities. When the deputies continued to search the apartment to make sure the place was clear, they made an even more shocking and disturbing discovery in the bedroom. They saw a baby in a crib, partially covered by a blanket and a pillow. It was five-month-old Kevin, and he was also dead. He had one of his tiny t-shirts stuffed into his mouth. He had died of suffocation. Even though the scene in Kevin's room wasn't nearly as dramatic or bloody as what police found in the living room, the sight of this newborn baby boy was in a state that would haunt them more than anything that these deputies had ever seen before. The first person investigators spoke to was the one who made the initial 911 call, and that would have been Jim Peng. I guess he's got some splaining to do. They brought him down to the police station for the formal interview. Jim said that he had just come back from a business trip overseas. After he landed at Orange County's John Wayne International Airport, the first place he stopped was Jennifer's apartment. He said that he had gone straight there. He explained that he wanted to see how Jennifer and Kevin were doing because he had just recently moved Jennifer to California from China. 
but when he knocked on the door, nobody answered. So he decided to go home, assuming Jennifer and the baby were out shopping or running errands. But as the hours passed, Jim had tried calling Jennifer several times, but was still receiving no answer. Growing more concerned about why he hadn't heard from her, Jennifer decided to go back to Jennifer's apartment to check on them again. He knocked and knocked, and still nobody came to the door. This time he decided to try opening it, and to his surprise, he found it unlocked. When he stepped inside, that's when Jim discovered the carnage in the living room, and Jennifer dead on the sofa. In their examination of the crime scene, investigators could see that there was no indication that there was any kind of forced entry, so they concluded that it was likely Jennifer knew her attacker. They surmised that Kevin was asleep in his crib when Jennifer let whoever it was that did this into her apartment voluntarily, so it had to be someone that Jennifer was familiar with or comfortable with inviting in. It didn't take long for Jim to become the prime suspect in Jennifer and Kevin's murders. But just as fast as Jim made it to the top of the suspect list, he was knocked off of it just as quickly when it had been determined that Jennifer and Kevin had been dead for a minimum of around 24 hours based on the state of their bodies. Jim was able to provide investigators with his plane ticket and boarding pass showing that he was out of the country 24 hours earlier when the murders took place. He was thousands of miles away in Taipei, Taiwan, when his mistress and newborn were killed. Jim's alibi was as solid as an alibi could be. You know, I'm not a big fan of what had been going on here between Jennifer and Jim. The both of them went about things terribly wrong. While Jim was being a terrible husband, wanting his cake and eating it too, the fact remains that Jennifer was willing to put up with him, and you know his wife Lisa wasn't exactly dragging him into divorce court either to take half of everything that would have been rightfully hers, which probably would have been more of a slap in the face for Jim than anything else. But that didn't seem to be an option for Lisa. She was going to get her way one way or another. She wasn't going to give up. And Jim wasn't even trying to promise that he would stop or even pretend that he would stop and continue to carry on with Jennifer behind Lisa's back. That was his intentions. I would have taken him to the cleaners if I were Lisa. But you know, that darned Chinese culture and how being a divorcee is like the scarlet letter. And for Jennifer, she was no better at standing up for herself and what she wanted out of all of this either. She wanted a wealthy husband to marry and to have a family with. I find it hard to believe that in a country with a billion people in it, that Jim was the best that she could do, and he wasn't even willing to give her what she wanted. I know that he was her ticket to the United States, and I know that after she had the baby, going to the United States would give her son the best life possible, and that was something she needed Jim's help with. I just think she could have just bided her time with him accepted that he was going to stay married to his wife and kept her options open. She wasn't completely helpless or hopeless. Jennifer had been college educated in China. She was smart and had a lot of ambition in addition to being a beautiful woman. She really could have used Jim as not only her ticket to America, but also as a stepping stone for bigger and better things for herself which she could have done on her own if she had set her mind to it. 
But for whatever reason, she had her sights set on this guy marrying her. And I believe that she got pregnant in order to use that as leverage to try and corner him into making the big commitment to her instead of his wife. But anyway, that's just my opinions. So in looking over the crime scene, it did not appear that the motive behind this killing had anything to do with a burglary gone wrong. There didn't appear to be anything missing. Things around the apartment had not been rummaged through. Things were not ransacked. Nothing was really out of place. Investigators felt as if the victim knew the killer and let them in because of the lack of forced entry. But the manner in which Jennifer was killed, the stabbing, it told of a crime steeped in a lot of anger and fury aimed at the victim. On the surface, this was definitely starting to look like a crime of passion. So after clearing Jim, deputies went around to the neighbor's apartments and knocked on doors to see if anyone may have seen or heard anything unusual a day or so before Jennifer and Kevin's bodies were discovered. But nobody heard anything out of the ordinary. They didn't see anyone unusual or any cars that they didn't recognize. The fact that nobody heard anything was lending to the notion that Jennifer likely knew her killer because she didn't yell or scream out for help. It appeared that she let her killer inside and then was attacked before she could even begin to think about calling out for help. Jennifer had only been in the United States for less than a year when she and Kevin were murdered. So she didn't know very many people. Therefore, the investigators didn't have tons of interviews to do. But they did find that Jennifer had one woman that she considered to be a best friend and her name was Nina. They met by chance when Jennifer first arrived in California with Jim. They had gone out to eat at a Chinese restaurant and Nina was an employee there. And from that meeting, the two of them struck up a friendship. In fact, they had become such good friends that Nina even asked Jennifer to be one of her bridesmaids at her wedding. It was pictures of that wedding that investigators found inside Jennifer's apartment that they discovered she had at least one close friend that they could try and speak to. But there was one particular photo that kind of stood out to investigators. It was somewhat of a cozy, cozy photo of Jennifer with the groom. And it was cozy enough for investigators to think that maybe they needed to talk to the husband as well because they were already going down the path that this killing was one motivated by either a great deal of anger, a great deal of passion, or both. After taking a look at Nina and her husband, and his name was Bob, investigators were pretty satisfied that neither one of them had anything to do with Jennifer and Kevin's violent killings. And that really pretty much eliminated all the people Jennifer had around her at the time. She simply hadn't had the chance to meet that many new people in the time that she had been living in California. And that troubled investigators because they had that gut feeling that the person who did this to her and her son was somebody very close in her life. The 18 stab wounds to Jennifer was a telltale sign of that. She was living in a very nice community, a community of wealth and affluence. She lived alone with a new baby. She was a relative stranger in the country. She had very little, if any at all, command of the English language. She wouldn't just open her front door to anyone. That inherently should have made this case pretty easy to solve, as most domestic violence cases typically are. 
After eliminating the only friend Jennifer had made since her move to Orange County, investigators decided to turn their sights back on the person who is often usually the main suspect in a case like this, the father of the baby, Jim Peng. He wasn't exactly on the up and up with detectives the first time around in terms of this complicated, multi-pronged love life that he had. He was kind of around, but for the most part, he really wasn't around Jennifer's apartment all that much. In fact, they quickly ascertained that Jim didn't live there. So they wanted to know what is going on here. Where are you at all the time? Where do you live? What's happening here? So Jim finally fessed up. Yeah, it's complicated. Admitting to the investigators for the first time that Jennifer was his mistress and that he's married, that he has two sons with his wife, and that they live just a couple of miles around the way in Rancho Santa Margarita. To investigators, this was a huge revelation. The love triangle. This case was quickly heating up. Investigators were beginning to feel like, okay, We've got something here. We're not just spinning our wheels. As Jim explained his situation, the investigators were realizing that this is a man who was leading a double life. Literally, he had two very distinct existences. And through it all, Jim had managed to keep both Jennifer and Lisa relatively in the dark about one another up to that point. This revelation Jim had just made about having a wife and a mistress was exactly the break investigators needed to get closer to solving this case because this meant they were saying hello to the motive finally. But who was it that exactly had the motive? Jim Pang is the one who put all these pieces in their places. He is the one who created the situation that he found himself in with a wife, two teenage boys, a mistress, and a newborn baby living so close that they're practically neighbors, yet neither one knew that the other was actually that close by. Add into the mix that Jim and his wife are the owners of a company worth upwards of $250 million. Investigators wondered if Jim Pang was the one who was starting to feel like the walls were closing in on him. Was this man reaching a breaking point? Was he becoming so desperate to get out of this mess that he would resort to desperate actions. They knew that Jim was a very savvy businessman. If he could solve a problem within his multi-million dollar international corporation, he could very easily solve the 99 problems he's got with these women and kids. Jim thought he had it all figured out, but really? We all know that men like Jim Pang can only keep things happy, fine, and dandy for so long. Something had to give. All the investigators needed to do was figure out what that was. So all of a sudden, now that investigators were looking at this case through the lens of infidelity, they weren't going to simply be satisfied with the ironclad alibi Jim Pang was able to provide with his plane ticket and boarding pass that proved he could not have been the one to have murdered Jennifer and Kevin because of the lividity that had already set in. It was determined that Jennifer and her son had been dead for around 24 hours by the time Jim landed at John Wayne Airport and made that drive straight over to Jennifer's apartment, which was just a 15 or 20 minute drive down the 405 freeway. 
And Jim was adamant that he had nothing to do with the murder of his mistress and their newborn son. He was in Taiwan when Jennifer was killed, and there was really no getting around that. But investigators also knew that Jim had the means to get around that too. So they wanted him to take a polygraph test, to which he agreed. Now, many of us don't give a lot of stock to polygraph tests, and there are reasons why the results of those tests are not admissible in court. But police and investigators use it as a tool to try and figure out if someone might be lying. And it's really more of a thing that's useful in potentially excluding someone as a person of interest versus including someone. A lot of times the results of the polygraph will help determine whether or not they will continue to investigate somebody or if they'll go ahead and set them aside for the time being. Jim, he took the test and he passed with flying colors. That, along with the fact that he had an airtight alibi, it caused investigators to go ahead and move on from him as being a suspect. They decided that the next logical place to go would be Jim's wife, Lisa. The list of people Jennifer knew in the area was quickly dwindling. They had eliminated her best friend Nina, her husband Bob, Jim Pang, the only person left that Jennifer knew that would have possibly been allowed into her apartment was Jim's wife, Lisa, and she was nearby. The home that she lived in with Jim was in very close proximity to the scene of the murders, so the investigation turned towards her. Of course, it didn't take long once investigators came to find out that Jim had an interesting love life that he's got the wife and the kids over here in Rancho Santa Margarita. He's got the mistress and the newborn over there a couple miles away in Mission Viejo. And Jim was the one who was paying all of Jennifer's bills. And the wife was probably not going to be a fan of that either. It's not going to take a rocket scientist to figure out that there's probably a woman scorned in the mix here. And... Your husband having a mistress half his age and a brand new baby that he's put up in a really nice apartment practically in their own backyard. I mean, that's got a pretty good chance of having the biggest motive ever to want Jennifer and the baby dead. They just needed to figure out how much, if anything, Lisa actually knew when it came to Jennifer G. Did she know that Jim was carrying on this affair with this mistress? And did she know that said mistress lived so very close to her own home? Investigators decided that they needed to go and speak to Lisa in person, and they decided to do so there at the home that she shared with her philandering husband. I mean, they had a lot of things that they wanted to ask her, but they also wanted to see what her reaction would be when they told her about the murder and who the victim was exactly. You know, under the presumption of innocence, as if Lisa had no idea what was going on with her husband, that she had no idea that he was keeping a second family right under her nose and that that second family had just been slaughtered. You know, when I think about it, I actually don't know how anyone would react to news like that. Whether they were in the know about the mistress or whether they had something to do with the murder or not, what would a reaction to that kind of bombshell news look like? And didn't y'all just get some massive Nancy Grace flashbacks when I said bombshell? Bombshell tonight. The only reason she's on my mind is because I recently listened to an episode of Nancy's podcast about the murders of Ethan Chapin, 
Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gunqualvez in Moscow, Idaho back on November 13th. I mean, I really don't want to say anything negative about Nancy, but she's kind of sort of interrupty and she's kind of pretty much having that suspect who was arrested pretty much assigned to his death row cell already. Her and her bombshells. You know what would be a bombshell? If she let a guest on her show get a word in edgewise. I'm just kidding. Nancy Grace, don't come at me. I'm sorry. I don't want to talk. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I like Nancy Grace. I don't have anything against her. And I used to watch her show on HLN. But I, I mean, it was hard to listen to the way that she was already convicting this guy. And I mean, it sounds bad. I know the news going around right now. And I'll probably do an episode on it. I want to go over the um, that probable cause affidavit, just like I did with the um, Delphi murders. But anyway, sorry, sidetrack. Let's go on. So the investigators wanted to get Lisa's uncut, unedited reaction when they break this news to her, right? So when they told her that her husband had a mistress that was living close by, Lisa had very little reaction. If anything, they described her as acknowledging what they were saying as a fact and that she was sort of resigned to it, to the things that were going on. But we know that Lisa was very well aware of Jennifer's existence. We knew that already. And she went ahead and explained not just how she found out about the affair, but how she found out Jennifer was no longer thousands of miles away in Shanghai, but rather right there in Orange County. So there was an occasion when Lisa had traveled from Taiwan back to California. When she arrived home, Jim wasn't there. When she went into their bedroom, and I have to assume she was suspicious, or she made this trip without telling Jim, hoping to catch him or catch something. But when he wasn't home, she looked around her master bedroom, and in doing so, she found women's underwear in her bed that wasn't hers, and she found women's clothing hanging in the closet, also not hers. Lisa pulled those clothes out of the closet and proceeded to take a pair of scissors to them. And later on that same evening, Jim arrived home with Jennifer. Like I said, he either didn't know Lisa was going to be back from Taiwan or he didn't care. But either way, when they walked into the house, Lisa confronted them. And she said, what are you doing in my house? And Jennifer, being completely unapologetic, answered, This may be your house now, but don't be so certain it always will be. This reply angered Lisa, who told her, Who do you think you are? You are the one destroying my family. Why do you have to do this? But Jennifer did not care and was belligerent about it when she told Lisa that she was never going to go away. And therein lies the problem here. Lisa and Jennifer were pretty much cut from the same cloth. They were both digging their heels in and they were both determined to somehow make the other one go away so that they could be the one married to Jim. After learning all of this background information from Lisa, the investigators felt like they had a reason to look further into her because of this whole mess that Jim Payne created. It makes for a pretty strong motive for someone to do what had happened to Jennifer and Kevin. And it made sense based on what they knew of the crime scene, that they believed the person who did this to Jennifer was somebody that she knew because she had seemingly let them in willingly. There was no forced entry. 
There were very few other people that Jennifer was familiar with since she was relatively new to the area. And the 18 stab wounds was something that investigators believed to be an act committed by someone who was very angry and needed to be that up close and personal with their victim to be able to plunge that knife into a person that many times. It had to be rageful and it had to be personal. There was something else that took place while this killing was happening that was even more up close and personal than the stabbing itself. It was discovered on Jennifer's upper left arm and it appeared to have been a bite mark that the medical examiner found while conducting the autopsy. That bite mark was swabbed, saliva had been left behind by the person who made that mark and a DNA profile had been developed as a result of that evidence. By that time in 1993, the technology was available to provide reliable DNA results from a sample such as this. It was only a matter of linking the evidence to the person who left it there. When investigators were informed that there was a DNA profile of the killer available, this was exactly what the investigators had been hoping for to get them closer to solving this case. And after the detective spoke to Lisa Pang, they were left with someone to look into who had a motive, if not the most motive, for possibly wanting Jennifer and her newborn son dead. So having this DNA along with a suspect who had a strong motive could very well be what they needed to wrap this up. DNA swabs had been taken from everyone investigators had spoken to up to that point, and everyone had given their samples willingly. And when the DNA recovered from Jennifer's body was compared to the DNA samples from the various individuals that they had spoken to, a match was made to Lisa Pang, the scorned wife. I doubt that she had any idea when she bit down on Jennifer's arm that she was leaving behind her genetic identification. I imagine Jennifer was fighting back for her life when Lisa had to chomp down on her arm to prevent her from hitting or scratching or pulling her hair, whatever it was that Jennifer was doing to defend herself, and Lisa bit her to stop her. Just like good old Stephanie Lazarus had to do to her victim some seven years earlier from this case to Sherry Rasmussen, that bite mark came back many more years later than it took here in Jennifer's case to bite Lazarus in the butt too, which is a case I covered on Patreon if you're interested. Anyway, so now investigators have pretty much definitively linked Lisa Pang to Jennifer and Kevin's murders. So we're looking at a slam dunk case here, right? Not so fast. With the DNA evidence in hand, Lisa was taken into custody and charged with Jennifer and Kevin's murders. Even though they never really had to prove a motive in a court of law, they had a pretty darn good one in that she murdered Jennifer because Jennifer was having a long-standing affair with her husband of 20 years, and she murdered the child that came about as a product of that affair. However, despite the fact that there seemed to be a solid case against her, Lisa Pang insisted that she was innocent of what she was being charged. She insisted that she had nothing to do with the brutal double murder and interestingly enough, Jim Pang was singing the same song. As they sat in the interrogation room together upon Lisa's arrest, Jim was sitting there also adamant that his wife did not do this. At that point, Jim asked to speak to Lisa alone before they took her away to book her into the Orange County Jail. 
Now, I don't know, but these two seem pretty ignorant as to how all of this worked. I guess, why would they know any better, right? They're two people who are immigrants from Taiwan. They probably didn't speak great English. They likely didn't know a lot about the American justice system. But if there ever was a time when somebody needed to have an attorney up in this place, it was these two and someone that was bilingual in Mandarin Chinese. And they were clearly underestimating the police and how they do things because when Jim asked if he could speak to Lisa in private before they hauled her off to booking, he either thought that they were going to have that privacy or he didn't think the room was wired for audio or video or both. Or maybe he thought he could get away with speaking in Chinese and nobody would be the wiser or be able to decipher what they were saying. But the officers were like, yeah, sure, go ahead, knock yourselves out. And they got up and left the room. I suppose giving Jim and Lisa the impression that they were free to talk and that nothing they would say would go beyond those walls. An attorney would have put a stop to this before it ever got started and been like, whoa, no, 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 no. Don't say a word. Just no, say nothing. Lisa had already been read her rights by then. So she's got maybe a basic understanding that anything she says would be used against her. So yeah, there go the police. And if this were me, I would have skipped and cartwheeled out of the room with happiness and joy and unicorns and rainbows coming out of my butt. But they left them alone in the room. They had this expectation of privacy when I think they should have known better. So Jim started speaking to Lisa in Chinese. And after a few minutes... The police came back in and told them that they needed to wrap this up, that they had to go. And from there, they put Jim and Lisa in separate rooms and they went to have their Chinese interpreter brought in because even though they were probably getting some good stuff from the two of them as they were speaking to each other in Chinese, the investigators were also a little bit nervous to leave them in there together for too long. But like I said, if it were up to me, I would have left them in there all day to let Lisa and Jim talk her right into a life sentence. But hey. That's just me. So the interpreter arrived and her name was Shiru Hong. She said that for the majority of the conversation, Lisa was blaming Jim, repeatedly telling him that this was all him. He was the one who started this whole thing. He was the one who caused them to be in this place, who brought them to that point. She was saying, if you had never done this, if you had never started this with Jennifer, None of this would have ever happened. Our family would be together. We would be happy to just live our lives. All of this is your fault. This is your problem. None of this is anything that I ever did or caused, but I'm going to end up being the one going to jail. But here's the thing about that conversation in Chinese. Jim posed a question. He asked Lisa why she did this. And Lisa said that she was defending herself. When she gave him that answer, Jim replied, 18 times, you had to defend yourself 18 times. Of course, he's referring to the number of stab wounds that she inflicted onto Jennifer. And Lisa said, well, she fell on the knife. And Jim, incredulous, asked, she fell on the knife? How were there so many cuts if she fell on the knife? But that was the point when the detectives put a stop to the conversation and told Lisa and Jim that they had to take her in and have her booked on the charges. So there was never an answer to that question. And like I said, I would have let them spend all day in there, but they didn't know what the two of them were talking about. And they couldn't have known that Lisa was burying herself 
and Jim was right there with the shovel helping her. And yeah, maybe Lisa was savvy enough to know that this was going to be on the record because she put it out there that this was something that was caused by a great deal of anger because of this extramarital affair as she laid the blame squarely on Jim's shoulders for bringing that woman into their lives in the first place. And she was laying the foundation for a case of this being a crime of passion and possibly a matter of self-defense. But to me, even though there may be some mitigating factors woven throughout that, it doesn't diminish the fact that she also suffocated to death an innocent newborn child. And there's no whittling that down or minimizing that to anything other than what that was, which is first-degree murder. Once the detectives were made aware of the content of that conversation between Jim and Lisa, they felt like they had a pretty open and shut case there against her. What they didn't know was that Jim Pang was going to pull a fast one on everybody. The prosecutor on the case at the time had this gut feeling that there was going to be a good possibility that Jim was going to try and see his way out of this entire situation by disappearing back to his home country of Taiwan. So when it came time for the preliminary hearing, the prosecutor wanted it to be on the record that if, for some reason, Jim Pang was all of a sudden unavailable in the future, that whatever his testimony was to be at the preliminary hearings would be used in all future court proceedings and would be considered his sworn testimony. The prosecutor knew that Jim had a way out of this and that this was probably a very huge embarrassment for him and that he would most likely leave the United States and never come back there again. And the prosecutor wasn't wrong. He just had that impression from Jim that he would be a reluctant witness. And he was right. Jim Pang provided seven days worth of testimony at Lisa's preliminary hearings, but he never appeared for any other court proceedings involved in this case ever again. In late August of 1995, Lisa Pang stood trial for the murder of her husband's mistress and the child that they had together. If you recall, at the same exact time, to the west, across the way over in downtown Los Angeles, one Mr. O.J. Simpson was standing trial for his own double murder case. His had been going on by then since January of that year, and it came to a stunning end on October 3, 1995, with a not guilty verdict. His trial was televised, and while Lisa's trial also had cameras in the courtroom, I'm not so sure as many people were as dialed in as they were with Simpson's case. Throughout Lisa's month-long trial, she sat very coldly and stoically, especially during the times when there was testimony about Jennifer and Kevin and their murders. But whenever anyone on the stand provided testimony as to Lisa having been the one who did the murders, she would become completely unglued and disruptive. She would put her hands over her face and openly wail in the courtroom. So I don't know if she ever really shed any tears, but if she did, they were most likely tears for herself. Her outbursts were very calculated and well-timed and, to me, were meant to detract from what was being said, specifically about her and what she was accused of doing. And even though the prosecution was confident in their case against Lisa, they really never could factor in how the courtroom dramatics 
would actually play into that because everything can have an impact on any one of those jurors. And it would only take one of them to be moved by Lisa's emotional outbursts and her supposed breakdowns into a blubbering mess. What can also complicate a case like this was the manner in which things were said in Chinese and the way those things were interpreted. Because her DNA was found at the crime scene, Lisa had to admit that she was at the apartment. But during her interrogation with the police, she never said that she was there. She was denying any involvement. However, during that conversation that she was having with Jim while they were left alone in that interrogation room, Jim had asked Lisa, when was it that she went to the apartment? And she replied in Chinese with a three-word answer, which was Bong Wan Ma. And there seemed to be an inflection in that Lisa was apparently answering the question with a question. Three different Mandarin Chinese interpreters were at the trial. There was one for Lisa, one for a witness, and one for the audience. And all of them disagreed as to what Lisa meant when she said those three words. So apparently in Chinese, there's no past, present, or future tenses. For example, when we speak in English, we know when we're talking about something in the present tense, and we know when we're speaking about something in the past and something in the future. But when speaking Chinese, what I'm understanding is that it really depends on the context around what's being discussed. The time frame, whether it's past, present, or future, is inferred based on what's being spoken about in the moment. So Jim's statement asking Lisa when she went to Jennifer's was translated in two different ways. In a documentary I watched about this case, it said that Jim's statement was originally translated to, what time did you go there that night? Tell me in a hurry. What was listed as the accurate translation is, at what time did you go to her place? Tell me right away. So her answer, those three words, the first translation was that she replied that night. The second and apparently more accurate translation was in the evening. So it's a little bit confusing, but depending on how Lisa's answer was interpreted was important based on the timeline of the crime and what Jennifer's time of death was determined to be and how her answer was to be interpreted would have made a difference in terms of whether or not she incriminated herself and placed herself inside Jennifer's apartment within the time frame that she was estimated to have died. It may have been earlier in the evening, too early for Lisa to have been the one to kill her, but still having left her DNA behind by way of that bite mark. It all depends if when Lisa made that statement and assuming she was being honest since she was talking to Jim, she either meant she went at night, meaning she went in the evening, maybe 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., or she went during the night. That could have taken her, have been gone over there to the very early morning hours before dawn. It was determined that Jennifer had died sometime before sunrise. So if Lisa's statement was that she went there in the evening, meaning the evening before, then she would have been ruled out as having been responsible for the murder. Lisa's attorney would be able to put forth the notion that she went there the evening before for whatever reason, maybe to confront her about her relationship with Jim or the fact that she was now living in Orange County. 
This meeting could have escalated into a fight where Lisa ended up biting Jennifer, and then he would be able to make the claim that when she left Jennifer's apartment, she was alive and well. So because of that, this was not going to be the slam dunk prosecutors thought it was going to be. And it wasn't. The jury was unable to reach a unanimous decision with a 10 to 2 split in favor of conviction. To the prosecutor, the emotion of the whole thing, the adultery, the betrayal, the way that Jim Peng treated his wife and his children, it seemed to get to the jurors. And it did not matter how much they had to show that it was indeed Lisa Peng who did this to Jennifer and Kevin. They just couldn't get past the intense emotions that those jurors were feeling when they told the judge that they couldn't agree. Some of them were even in tears. Not to mention the fact that Jim Peng was off living his best life back in Taiwan, doing whatever it was he was doing, leaving Lisa behind in the United States to face all of this on her own. And with that, there was no choice but to declare a mistrial. Lisa Pang was going to be made to face trial for a second time the following year. It was a second chance to bring this case to a new set of jurors and give them the opportunity to decide whether or not Lisa should be held accountable for Jennifer and Kevin's murders. While there had always been keen media attention and interest in this case, this time around, there wasn't the O.J. Simpson factor playing into it. And their media was even more intense because there was a fact that this involved people from another country. And it wasn't just limited to Taiwan. This case had all of Asia interested. This was like their very own O.J. Simpson with a lot of the same themes. A double murder, love, betrayal. It was very salacious. There was a new judge presiding over the case, but other than that, all the other players were the same. This time around, however, both sides are armed with the information that they were able to take from the first trial, and they had all of that to work with when it came to pounding out their new strategies in how to present their cases this time around. And apparently it worked well for the prosecution, who in the end were able to win a conviction. Lisa Pang was found guilty of two counts of second-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that was that. Lock her up, throw away the key, and move on to the next, right? Not quite. Three and a half years after Lisa was convicted, in October of 1999, her conviction was overturned on appeal. And so, Orange County prosecutors decided to go for it a third time. And in the summer of 2001, a second jury found itself hopelessly deadlocked again, this time in a split of eight to four in favor of conviction. Of course, Jennifer's family, who had been back and forth from China for all of these court proceedings, were upset and exasperated, with Jennifer's sister Jackie telling the media, that the jury system is problematic. It can't get any clearer than this case. The motive, the evidence, the DNA. She did this. And to an extent, I have to agree, but I've said this before. If this case would have happened today, none of this would be happening. And I can't help but feel like things outside this case had an impact on the jury when it really shouldn't have. The O.J. Simpson trial seem to make it hard for jurors to want to convict, even when it's a seemingly cut-and-dry case. 
I also think that the jurors allowed themselves to be swayed by this scorned wife situation that Lisa Pang was in. And while I'm 100% on Lisa's side in terms of doing what she needed to do for herself when it came to dealing with a crappy husband, she certainly didn't have the right to take it out on Jennifer. No matter how arrogant and obnoxious Jennifer acted about it and how in your face she was about her goal to become the next Mrs. Pang and making not only Lisa's husband hers, but also making her family home hers as well. Lisa had no right to do what she did to Jennifer, much less to Kevin, who was just a baby. I can maybe understand how and why a jury might look at Jennifer as this home-wrecking seductress and feel a measure of sympathy for Lisa. But when you factor baby Kevin into it, there's simply no getting around the fact that this woman was cold and calculating when she heartlessly shoved that t-shirt down that baby's throat and suffocated the life out of him. I feel like the jury forgot about Kevin, as if his life didn't matter. They could have hung on Jennifer's case, but for crying out loud, they could have at least convicted her for being the baby killer that she was and is. But I know that they can't separate those two things when she is being tried for both. Here's the thing, though. The jury could not be convinced that Lisa was actually the one who did the murder. The defense was able to put forth the theory that it was Jim Pang who did the killing. And, of course, Jim was nowhere to be found, so he couldn't refute that or defend himself. The jury simply did not believe that the prosecution was able to definitively place Lisa at the scene of the crime, even though Jim had a solid alibi and Lisa had the strongest motive, and left a bite mark with her DNA on the victim. But I personally think that that's a bunch of nonsense, but whatever, it is what it is. And ultimately, Orange County prosecutors decided to not take this to a fourth trial, opting instead to offer Lisa a plea deal. The third trial had also been crippled by the appeals process, and there was a ruling that was made that Jim Pang's recorded testimony from the preliminary hearings was not admissible at the third trial. Without his testimony, because he was the one who Lisa told that she was in the apartment when Jennifer died, but that it was self-defense and that Jennifer had fallen on the knife, without that, the case was severely weakened. About a week and a half after the third trial ended in a second hung jury, Lisa Pang was offered the deal of a lifetime. Plead guilty to two counts of voluntary manslaughter and the prosecutor would settle for time served. But the caveat was, Lisa had to get the F out of the United States and don't ever bring her murdery ass back over here again. While Lisa would be taking responsibility for the murders, acknowledging that she at least manslaughtered them, the prosecutor had to acknowledge that it was probably going to be difficult taking this to trial for a fourth time and actually win a conviction. The judge sentenced Lisa to 11 years. She was issued her credits for time served and good behavior, which instantly paroled Lisa. From there, she went down to some immigration detention facility in San Pedro, California, and was eventually sent back to Taiwan. And just like O.J. Simpson, a prominent and wealthy double murderer gets to walk free. And there are still people out there who believe that Lisa Pang didn't do it 
even though she admitted it and accepted the deal. While this was technically a victory for the prosecution, it was one that was hollow, a victory that really didn't feel like one. And many were left feeling like a great injustice had been done in allowing for Lisa Pang to go back to her home and continue to live out her life with her children. Even though there may be a few people out there who deeply feel the pain and torment that Jim Pang put his wife through, and possibly even felt like Jennifer may not have been the only one that awakened the dragon within the wife of the man that she was messing around with, she continued to poke and poke and poke until the woman could no longer take it. That still doesn't take away from the fact that Lisa never said, that's not what's going on here with her. That she was so messed up in the head over what Jim had done to her and her family that she just lost it. Lisa Pang all along insisted that it wasn't her. There is no place for anyone to really hold on to any sympathy for this woman who would never admit to this having been a crime rooted in extreme passion and highly charged emotions. The DNA evidence left behind on that bite mark was more than enough to link Lisa to the violent event that took place inside Jennifer's apartment when she was killed. Lisa has maintained that she fought with Jennifer and the bite happened days prior to the killing. But it's just so all unlikely that for me, it does not raise this to the level of reasonable doubt. It is unreasonable to think that the DNA persisted on that woman's skin for several days, several sleeps, several showers. It's not reasonable. And lastly, regardless of what Lisa did to Jennifer or what Jennifer did to Lisa, none of that takes away from the fact that Lisa did that to an innocent five-month-old baby that had nothing to do with any of these women or their ridiculous feuding over an asshole of a husband and father and man in Jim Peng. Ladies, please have more respect for yourselves and do what Lisa should have done. Take in Jim Peng for every penny that he had, kicked him to the curb with the garbage, and told Jennifer to go ahead and take her leftovers home if she wanted him. That it was out there with the rest of the trash. And then run off with all the kids and all the money. And that would have been way more satisfying in the end. At least to me. So where Lisa might be today, nobody really knows and nobody really cares. Jennifer's family did file a wrongful death lawsuit. I guess that needed to be worked out over there in Taiwan or in China. And the details regarding the outcome of that, I just don't know. Jim Pang, of course, as I shared with you at the beginning, saw himself into some legal trouble with the federal government with the illegal importation of those CB radios, but it seemed as though he was eventually dismissed as a defendant since he was in charge of the Taiwan and China end of things, not here in the United States. And that was the ongoing criminal investigation that we brought up at the beginning of this episode. I'd like to thank Nate for recommending this story. He claims that there is no other podcast that has ever covered this. So remember where you heard it first. I want to thank you all for listening. Don't forget to follow this show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Join Patreon if you'd like to help support. And until next time, sweet dreams. Mm -hmm.